Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Seth Godin here with me. Welcome to my podcast, Seth. It's a pleasure. Thank you for coming all this way. It was the longest anyone's ever traveled for me to do a podcast with you. <laughs> True expression of love and respect. Thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me here to uh, your area in Hastings on Hudson in New York. And I must say that over the years, I've uh, you know read your books. I absorbed many of your shared insights. And I know that you've influenced and supported so many people in this ever-changing uh, business marketing jungle. <laughs> And uh, so a big thank you for everything you do. Prego. And for those of you who might not know of Seth, Seth is an entrepreneur, uh, best-selling author and speaker. And in addition to launching one of the most popular blogs in the world, he's written 18 best-selling books so far, uh, including The Dip, uh, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, Tribes, and What to Do When It's Your Turn. Uh, and he's also renowned for his writing and speaking, and also his founded two companies, uh, Squidoo and um, uh, Yodine, which was acquired by Yahoo. Long time ago. Long time ago, exactly. So I, I'm really fascinated by this kind of mix of psychology and marketing and everything you do. You kind of often see patterns that many people don't uh, see. So what is it that guides you? when you have an idea that you figure is so strong that you need to kind of express it and inspire people with it? Well, part of the magic of having a blog every day is that you go to bed knowing you're going to blog again tomorrow, which makes you more curious. And when you see things, you have to be able to explain them because it's not particularly interesting to blog something that you don't understand. So when I see something in the world that I didn't expect, that I can't immediately understand. I'm curious about it. I try to understand why is it the way that it is. And then I'll write about it. And usually, if it works, it will work because people will say to me, oh, I knew that all along, but it had never occurred to me before. Those two things don't really go together, but they do. So what I'm, I'm not here to tell people things that are shocking. I'm here to help them see things that are right in front of their nose that they didn't bother to notice before. And I love uh, many things that you've written. And one thing that kind of remains deeply rooted because it's also very simple and so true is uh, that the most brilliant strategy anyone can have is really one word and that's belief. And it is simple, but at the same time, it's extremely difficult, right? So what is it that makes us believe or not? You know, we've been around for millions of years. We evolved to get where we are. You don't pass on your genes if you're foolish. You don't pass on your genes if you get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. And so deep within every creature is this inherent fear, fear of the unknown, fear of things we can't trust, fear of something that might be a dead end. But now our culture rewards people who do things that other people are afraid of. And that paradox gets us into a lot of trouble because we're stressed now, because we think that what we have to do is risk our life. But we don't. All we have to do is embrace the fear. We can't make the fear go away, but we can dance with it. And two things that help us dance with it are trust and belief. Trust, because if you think that the people you are with have your back, it's way easier. 
and belief, because belief is the bridge between us and the future. It is the path to get from where we are to where we want to be. And if we can use trust to create belief and use belief to create trust, we can create this cycle that helps us move forward. I was also thinking about how do you actually decide where Seth is needed? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, boy. So I'm not a lifeguard and no one's going to drown if I don't show up at a particular spot. So I'm not sure needed is as much as wanted. And I'm fortunate that there are a lot of places where I'm wanted. And I understand I can't be in all of them. So I'm already going to disappoint most people. There's already problems I can't write about, places I can't go, things I can't address. So if you can let that part go, then you can find the energy to wander productively, to wander from one thing to the other. Because I've worked very hard not to be the person who only writes about this, who only works on that. I think that my fresh posture helps me do a better job than if I just kept going over and over and over again to the same place. But what what inspires you? What makes you go to certain places or certain uh, you know s- thoughts and want to dive in deeper into certain areas? It's sloppy and random. It's not that I have a grand plan. It's mm. that in any given moment, I'm either overwhelmed, in which case I'm not looking around, or I'm bored, in which case I'm looking around. And if the right shiny object shows up on the right day, I could chase it for months. Mm-hmm. But you're doing so much and have done so much as well. So, yeah, I don't so think that's true. I don't go to meetings. So I save seven hours a day right there. And I don't watch television. So I save seven hours a day right there. So I have 14 hours free a day that most people don't have. And in those 14 hours, if I ship an hour of useful, productive work, that's way more than most people. But it's not like it takes me 23 hours to do an hour of productive, useful work. Mm-hmm. It takes an hour. And so I've intentionally made the rest of my day emptier than most people's because that emptiness lets in stuff that's actually valuable. People think that they're getting paid to be busy. You're not getting paid to be busy. You're getting paid to do something meaningful. Mm. And if you can do something meaningful in eight minutes, that's a good day. Yeah, that's the most important thing in people's lives. Whoever you ask, they say, I want to do something meaningful, right? And what is that? What is meaningful to you? It's generous and it's frightening. Because if it's boring, then lots of people are doing it. And if it's not generous, then it's selfish. And if it's selfish, you may have created meaning for yourself, but not for anybody else. So if you can find a way to do a job where other people are better because you did the job, you're probably creating something meaningful. And how do you market yourself in a way so it feels authentic? Okay, so this is one of my key words to be annoyed at. I don't think there's such a thing as authenticity. I think the last time you and I were authentic, we were wearing diapers and pooping in our pants when we were babies. (laughs) And ever since then, we did things on purpose, right? That lovely vest you're wearing, you wore that vest on purpose. It wasn't an accident. You wore it because you thought that other people, when you engaged with them, would see that you cared enough to present professionally today. And the same thing's true when we show up anywhere where emotional labor is necessary. Then we're doing it on purpose. It's not what we feel like in the moment. We're doing it with intent. It's design. Design thinking has two questions. Who's it for? What's it for? And everything we're doing that's effective has a who. Who are we trying to influence? Who are we trying to change? And a what. What change are we trying to make? And so my marketing is consistent in that I wear a professional's hat when I do it. I show up on purpose in the same way. 
you will never see me do something behind the scenes that I wouldn't do on stage because I'm consistent. But I'm not authentic in the sense that if I feel like going for an ice cream sundae, I just drop everything I'm doing, walk out of the room and go get one. No, I'm doing my work. And we don't want an authentic surgeon or an authentic lawyer or an authentic pizziolo. We want a professional. And so what it means to be a professional is that you are consistent and bringing emotional labor where it belongs. And if someone wants to call me a professional, I'm very flattered by that. But I'd rather not be authentic. What about genuine? You ask yourself the question, what would Nike do? What would Seth Godin do? Mm. What would Starbucks do? And you do that. You pick an iconic position in the marketplace. Patagonia, right? There may be times when Yves Chouinard feels like throwing a hamburger wrapper out the window of his car. Mm. He doesn't do it because Patagonia doesn't do things like that. Mm. Well... There are things Seth Godin does, and there are things Seth Godin doesn't do. And when I'm doing my best work, I'm doing what Seth Godin would do. Not Seth Godin the person, but Seth Godin the icon who markets a certain way. Mm. Each of us can do that, right? Mm. And it's about deciding what you stand for and doing that even when you don't feel like it. And um, your famous book, Purple Cow, it talks very much about transforming your business by being remarkable. But how can we be remarkable in, in today's environment? That's a funny question, because when I wrote the book, people said, well, all the remarkable stuff's already done, right? And now we're saying, well, the marketplace is so crowded, it's too hard to be remarkable because everyone's trying to be remarkable. So that's a pretty big shift in just 12 years or so. What remarkable means is not gimmicky. It doesn't mean causing a commotion. It means someone thinks you are worth talking about because I don't know how it is in Italian, but in English, remarkable has as its base the word remark, which means make a comment. So why would someone talk about you? They talk about you because it helps them to talk about you. It helps them feel like an insider, like their status is higher, like they're being generous, something. So if you can create an opportunity for people to benefit from talking about you, they will talk about you. So a simple example, my late friend Lionel Poulain had a bakery in Paris. His daughter runs it now. And years ago, there would be 20 or 30 people waiting in line to buy a loaf of bread. Now, there's not a shortage of bread in Paris. And these people waiting in line had just flown in from Tokyo, had just flown in from London or from New York. Why? Why would you fly all that way for a loaf of bread? And after you bought the loaf of bread, what would you do with it? Well, what you would do with it is bring it home and you would serve it to your friends. And you wouldn't just say, here, here's some bread. You would say, here's some bread I got in Paris. Let me tell you a story. Because it was famous bread. It was generous bread. It was important bread. Well, the word would spread because Lionel's bread was remarkable. Right down the road was a place that would sell you a baguette, but the baguette was typical. And typical is fine, but no one's going to talk about typical. They're going to talk about remarkable. And how, how do you think uh, your career would look like if uh, you were 25 today? I think that most of what I struggled to do the first 15 years of my career would have been 100 times easier today. Please remember, when I started, there were three business magazines and that was it. There was no other place to put your idea. There were three important business books published a week. That was it. There was no other way to publish your idea. There were no blogs. There was no 
outsourcing of tasks. You couldn't get like when I built Yo-Yo Dine, we had six full-time people who did nothing but send our emails. Today, you can do that for $20 a month from your laptop, right? I mean, mm. all of these methods of creating ideas, spreading ideas, sharing your ideas, teaching, connecting are a thousand times easier than they used to be. So I benefited from having to figure it out, but I think I would have gotten a lot more done if I could have just used MailChimp. 35 years ago, it was a glacier with some pools, and now we're in the middle of a river and things are moving and things are shifting. Mm. What we know is in 1970, a book would stay on the bestseller list in the US for 10 weeks. Now it stays on the bestseller list for one week or two. There's way more churn everywhere we look, which is bad if you're winning, but really good if you're coming up because it gives you more opportunities to show up in front of people. And I know one thing that you are very passionate about is uh, education. Yes. And of course, there is, you know, this kind of basic question, you know, what is it for? What is this education today for, right? And we all have opinions about what is there now, but what should happen in order to, you know, help at least the next generation and so on? Right. So I wrote a free book called Stop Stealing Dreams about education. It's a mess in the US. I'm assuming it is in many other places. And that's because 30 years ago, we stopped asking what it was for. We know what it used to be for. What it used to be for was to teach kids to put up with bureaucracy, to be compliant, to do what they were told, to color inside the lines, and then to patiently do a boring job for 40 years. That's what it was for. But we don't need those things anymore. But we still have the same school that we used to. We still have standardized tests, and we still have sitting in straight rows, and we still have failing if you don't move, and et cetera, et cetera. But when we look at the people we say we admire and the people who are leading and the people who are making change happen, none of them were good at school. So there's a misalignment here. And we have to begin by having parents say, teachers say, administrators say, let's have a conversation about what this place is for. Because if you don't know what it's for, how do you know if it's doing a good job? Yeah. Also, I'm um, of course I'm curious about your online education connected to this subject, yeah. the old MBA, right? right? What is it? How did you shape it, and uh, what's the next step? So, what I saw happening was online education was showing up, and it looked a lot like regular education. Here are some videos. There'll be a test. Maybe there isn't even a test, but memorize what I said, and then you will learn something. But there isn't a shortage of information. There's a shortage of change. There's a shortage of opportunity to shift gears and to see things differently. So I wanted to build something that would be like that. Mm. So the Alt-MBA is in a course. It's a workshop. And as a workshop, and it runs two or three hours a day for 30 days in a row. It's exhausting. And then it's over. But during that time, we teach people that they can get more done than they ever thought. We teach them to give feedback. We teach them to get feedback. We teach them to see things they didn't see before to be able to articulate change. And all of that in a cauldron mixed together intensely for 30 days with live coaches, with people from 40 other countries, it changes people. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm trying to do. I know exactly what, who it's for and what's it for. I'm not sure we can say the same thing about Yale University, but we can say it about the Alt-MBA. We know who it's for, we know what's it for, and we know that it's working. And who should do it? Well. It's not for a particular job title. We've had, our eldest student was 80-something from the Isle of Man, a woman named Sheila. 
And we've had 21-year-olds. We've had people from Amazon and Microsoft and Google. But we've also had tons of people from companies you never heard of. We've had freelancers. We've had people from the American Red Cross and Kiva and Acumen and Room to Read and Pencils of Promise. So it's not about your demographic. It's about how do you see the world and who do you want to become? So in some sense, we're cheating because the people who are there want to be there. Because I don't believe in compulsory education. I don't think there's anything called that. I think there's only voluntary education because you can't force someone to learn something against their will. We have no tests. We have no grades. So people don't do this to get it through it. They do it because the journey is worth it. Connected to this, I'm just curious, you know, what what advice would you give to, for example, my son Marco is 17. Hi, or, Marco. <laughs> or any kid that kind of age, you know, they're choosing university education and profession and so on. And the system is kind of pushing uh, the kids to be compliant and some kind of competitive zombies. Yeah, exactly. So, so I've gotten a lot of trouble for this, but I'm right and I'm not backing down. So what is the game? The thing to understand is if you can at a reasonable cost in terms of pain, suffering, and money, mm. get yourself a degree, then please go ahead and do it. But don't put too much effort in it. Put the minimum amount of effort in. And then spend all of the rest of your time building something you care about. So in my case, it was a business. I built with my friend Steve, the largest student-run business in the United States. We had 400 employees while I was in college. Mm. So I didn't get paid to do it. I made $50 a week. I did it because that project, which lasted a year and a half for me, transformed my life. Mm. But it doesn't have to be that. You could put on a Broadway show. You could figure out how to raise a million dollars for a charity you care about. You could organize an intramural team and win the championships. Do a thing, a project that you care about, that you can own, that you can point to and say, I made this and no one could stop me. That's what Marco should do. And now lots of people who are also parents, they're going to think, you know, okay, but they need to get the top grades in order to be accepted by There's whatever. There's no evidence that any of that matters. Yeah. None. There's no correlation between famous colleges and success and happiness. Mm -hmm. There's no correlation between good grades and success and happiness. None. That if we talk to, you know, pick your favorite famous billionaire, like, I don't know, Richard Branson, He had horrible grades. He had dyslexia. Paul Orfalia, who started Kinkos, sold it for $800 million. He had dyslexia. He had horrible grades. Look at uh, Bill Gates, who dropped out of Harvard. Sure, he got into a famous college, but then he dropped out. There's a lot of history here of people saying, I don't need this system's approval mm. to make a difference. Because the system is not about making a difference. It's about fitting in. And we don't need Marco or anybody else to fit in. The problem is that if everybody's fitting in, then what's going to happen, right? Who's going to move things? Who's exactly. going to change and things? And if you fit in all the way, if you excel by fitting in the most, you're the most invisible. And how has your view on uh, innovation uh, evolved since you came on the scene? Well, I guess because the internet hadn't connected us all, mm. I thought I was alone. I thought I was the only person who was as crazy as me. I thought I was the only person who was struggling. And so one of the big things the internet has done for us mm. is shown up and said, you're not alone. In fact, everywhere you look, there's someone even crazier than you, someone more lonely than you, someone who's more frustrated than you. And for some people, that's enough reason to give up. And for other people, it's enough reason to keep going. Mm. 
Mm. Do you have a network of friends or professional contacts and so on that you are always in touch with so that you kind of inspire each other and so on? Or do you sometimes feel alone? I wanted that very much when I was 25 years old, when I was 28 years old, and I didn't have it. And I really could have used it then. Now, my friends are my friends. They're not the people who I look to to inspire the next project. Mm. That tends to happen So I work in a studio and the idea of the studio is there are people, no one works for anybody else, but everybody is provoking everybody else. Everyone makes promises to other people and then pushes them. So that's the professional's work. Mm. And I think professionalizing is a good thing because Mm. now there's no excuse. But whatever works for you is what you should do. And do you think uh, innovation can save politics? I mean, we, we definitely need a, a need of, need of change there. <laughs> so there's a difference between politics and leadership. There's a difference between politics and governance. There's a difference between politics and democracy. It's also true that the media makes a living pushing us to mm. panic. Mm. Sure. And I think we have to resist that temptation, but we still have to be vigilant. So I'm optimistic that we will survive this I don't like the word populist because I don't think it's true, but this populist backlash that's going on right now. Mm. The thing is that capitalism has a lot of negative side effects, but one of its biggest positive side effects is it forces governance to be a lot more rational because industrialists don't like it when the system breaks. So there's a ratchet in place to keep the system working. But what's missing is a voice from people who care, who say, We've got to do something about income inequality. We've got to do something about education. We've got to do something about the environment. Because if we let those three things cycle in the wrong direction, nothing else is going to matter very much. Going back to you, Seth, do you believe in that kind of word, passion, that people need to be passionate about something and so on? And what is your passion if um, if you have one? And I'm thinking about this Latin word, you know, patira, which means really that you are, you know, something that you're really also willing to suffer for if needed. Right. You know? I love that word. Some people say you should do what you're passionate about. I say you should be passionate about what you do. That if I had been born 100 years from now or 100 years ago, I wouldn't do what I do now. It's not in my genes to do what I do now. Pick something. doesn't matter what you pick. Something you can be proud of. And then choose to become passionate about it. Find the change that you are making. Some bit of the change that you care enough about to suffer for. To do emotional labor for then do that. Because, you know, you meet someone who says, my only passion is flower arranging. I need to make a living flower arranging. Well, number one, it's really hard to do that. And number two is once you get paid for it, it's not going to be your passion anymore. You liked it precisely because you couldn't get paid for it. My passion is changing people from unhappy to happy. Hmm. Okay, great. Find some unhappy people who will pay you to change them into happy. It doesn't matter what the method is. The method isn't your passion. The change is your passion. What would you say are some, uh, let's call it, transformational points uh, in your life that have influenced you the most? Almost all of them were failures. I have learned way more from the failures than the successes. And fortunately, I've had way more failures. So more learning moments. I learned from all those people who didn't want to publish my books in the early days. I learned from all of the pitches that didn't lead to a sale. I learned from software that broke. I learned from design that didn't get through to people. I learned from book covers 
that didn't make people excited the way I thought they would. Each one of these failures helped me see a different way forward. And I wish on the people I care about the most just as many failures as I had. But initially, for example, when you felt that you had so much to say and express and you wrote these books and they say, no, not not interesting enough or not good enough, or what was the, the feedback and how did you go back and interpret that? Okay, so the feedback is never true. What people will tell you is different than what they think. So if someone says it's too expensive, that's not true. What they really mean is it's not worth the money. Different thing. In the case of the, my first books that I did, I was trying to make money for me and the publisher with books I was inventing. I did a book called How to Hypnotize Your Friends and Get Them to Act Like Chickens. And I knew we could sell a lot of books like that. It was 1987. And in 1987, at the cash register in a U.S. bookstore, we would sell a lot of those books. What I didn't understand was book publishers don't get paid very much. And they weren't, weren't going to be proud to publish that book. They would be embarrassed, even if it made money. And they didn't want to buy a book that would embarrass them. Well, I didn't know that. They didn't tell me that. And it took me a year of putting ideas in front of publishers before I figured out, oh, they want me to do something an author would do, even though they're telling me they want a book that's going to sell a lot of copies. What they really want is a book that will raise their status in the community. Mm. Once I saw that, once I, I learned from a guy named um, John Boswell, that my proposals that I was bringing to publishers were too well typeset. They were too pretty. So he typed his proposals with typos in them. Because if it's typed, it looks like you haven't finished it yet, that there's still hope. Whereas when I was bringing something that looked like a finished book, they're like, this is it? That's as good as it's going to get? Not good enough. <laughs> so he understood that selling them hope and collaboration was more effective because that's what they wanted to buy. So it took me a couple of years to learn that way of thinking. And the same thing's true with websites now, right? The, the most polished, most perfect website isn't the one that people click on. It's the one that looks like you can contribute something to it. And it's so much talk about purpose-driven organizations, uh, companies, sharing, and so on, and contributing, as you say. But yet, uh, sometimes uh, people are questioning, you know, is that really so, or is it just something that is talked about? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's both. It's not a principle until you have to give up something for it. Mm. So when push comes to shove and you're going to give up some quarterly numbers, when you have to give up uh, working with somebody that you care about or who will contribute, when you have to do something that's going to be painful and you don't compromise in that moment, now it's a principle. And there are definitely principled organizations. And those organizations have a track record of outperforming the market. Because it turns out when you have principles, your decisions are easier to make. And because you're spending less time on the edge cases, you can get back to work and figure out how to help the people you want to help. Are there any companies or organizations for that matter that right now you are impressed by? Not maybe everything they do, but... Every time I talk about a company I'm impressed by, they go bankrupt the next day. Okay. So I have to be very careful <laughs> not to do that. I would say that in most industries, there's somebody who's racing to the top and then there's somebody who's racing to the bottom mm -hmm. and you can tell them apart. And I don't know why you'd want to be on a company that's racing to the bottom because it's no fun and it doesn't end well. 
one of the typical you know behaviors of a lot of companies that I um, have worked with and also studied in Europe is as soon as fear is in their agenda somehow hidden or not they go for the typical stuff you know cast cutting right, getting exactly. away with people and so on and the ones who are really managing to succeed are exactly those that manage to park that fear and say okay what do we really want and are we truly relevant and then they figure it out exactly right yeah. and that's why most companies in those moments do the wrong thing and they all do it the same way And then they pay the price because they don't stand for anything after that. If you don't stand for anything, people aren't going to go out of their way to work with you. What do you think is, if we call it a long-term solution or long-term formula for all kinds of businesses, what do you believe in? I think trust trumps everything. Trust in the words you use, trust in the engagements people have with you, trust in uh, their ability to talk about you without being embarrassed. If you can earn more trust, everything else will take care of itself. Number two is the problem with being a public company in the United States is your investors are idiots and they are constantly pushing you to do the wrong thing. So what we need from a company is leadership that's brave enough to either not go public or to ignore what Wall Street has to say. Amazon's a fine example of this. The difference between Apple in the current age and Amazon in the current age is that Apple keeps making its shareholders happy and Amazon keeps disappointing its shareholders until they realize they were wrong and then they're happy. And that is the difference in how each company is building its future. You know the company H&M, the Swedish, of course. Of course yeah. yeah. And also IKEA for a very long time, it has been like part of their culture that you start there and you kind of work there for at least two decades or even more because you grow, they put you in different sure. positions, you have the ability to develop and so on. And nowadays maybe it's kind of working against them because there is this belief of knowing everything inside the companies and kind of trying to, you know, figuring everything out within instead of looking for maybe uh, advice and insights and so well, on from the I th outside. I think that H&M's problem was they chose to be a radical, aggressive discounter when there were very few other entities that were. So the traffic that that generated covered up a lot of flaws because when you're a quarter the price of the competition, you can do a lot of things wrong and you'll still do fine. But they created this whole new category. So once you have a whole category of competitors that are doing what you're doing, everything speeds up, the stakes get higher. The margins get thinner. So they sort of are hoisted on their own petard. They've created this new environment where they can't win anymore because someone who's faster or cheaper or braver than them will swoop in and take that little position. Who said that a company or a brand should last 100 years? Maybe it should last eight. And I'm a project-oriented person. I have done projects that worked And I haven't touched them again in five, 10 years because they did their thing and now I need to go do the next thing. Now, companies are a little different, but not a lot different. There's no guarantee that H&M deserves to grow at 20% a year every year forever. So I'm not sure what would happen if they had the best management in the world. It's not clear that they could solve their problem. <laughs> That's interesting. No, because um, I'm thinking, for example, when I go buying, you know, simple t-shirts or whatever in, sure. for 9.99 euro a t-shirt. I almost feel bad. 
Nice. Because I would like to pay more if I knew. And it's not like they are not having things under control. They are, you know, understanding what their supplies are. And they're doing lots of, of, of sustainable uh, corporate typical CSR work. And they've been doing it for ages. So it's not a criticism. It's just my feeling as a customer when I buy that $9.99 t-shirt, somebody's paying for that. Oh, yeah. And that's the human capital and that's the resources and, you know, exactly. everything else. And that means that I don't want to buy that cheap t-shirt. I would like it to be, I would rather go somewhere else and pay maybe twenty twenty five if I can afford it, right? And that kind of force is very strong. It's like a trend, if you like, sure. that is working against com- huge companies like that. Yeah, it's hard to bet against the cheapest, but Walmart discovered the very same thing, that mm. most of the people who do most of the value shopping can afford to spend more. Mm. That yes, you can reach a lot of people with a little bit of money, but over time, you need the next level up and the next level up of shopper because they have money to spend. And what we've created is this cultural dynamic that the supply chain matters. And that your status goes down if you're wearing something that is slave made. That doesn't have to be true, but it is true. I'm glad it's true. So as a result, companies that say, pick us because we're the cheapest, have to come up with a better story now. Which I think is great. Yeah. They really have to uh, deserve the attention and uh, the money. So, but assume all doors are open. And if you would have all kinds of resources available to you, is there anything that you would focus on, you know, to innovate or to change? So for most people who are listening to this, all doors are open and there isn't a limit of resources because you don't need to buy ads and you don't need a factory and you don't need a fancy building. So I have an advantage because a million people read my blog, but that's pretty much the only advantage I have. And that's enough. And anyone who wants to devote the time can build a following. So my answer to your question is the people who are listening to this shouldn't worry about What I would do if I had unlimited resources, they should realize they have unlimited resources. Mm. And if they would devote the three hours a day they spend watching television to building a thing that's generous, they could change things. So every day I come in here and I talk to Sam and to Alex and to Marie and to Kelly. And I say, what should we build? We could build what we want to build. What should we build? And that decision drives what we do next. So I wrestle with it all the time. And if I had... A billion dollars, I'd do exactly what I'm doing right now because this is the best spot to be to do it. And what is it that is next for you and your team? What are you Well, I have a, up a to? book coming out in um, November that I haven't talked about. So that's on the agenda. And now we're going to start building some new engagements for people. The Alt-MBA works extremely well. The marketing seminars had 6,000 students in it. So those two things will keep going. But... We're pioneering what it is to be a student and to be in a workshop. And there's a lot more left to do. Is there any particular question that you're trying to answer through this upcoming book? Um, Well, the real question through almost all of this is what makes us a culture? Why do we do some things and not others? It's not because we're programmed to. It's because of the world we live in. So there's a joke in the U.S., two goldfish are swimming in an aquarium. And one says the other, water? What's water? Because (laughs) we have no idea what our culture is. It's all around us and we're not paying attention. And my job is to pay attention to it. 
And and if um, you could give one piece of advice to leaders, however you define those, what would that be? It would be um, to fail more often and to fail in the service of generosity. That leadership and management are different things. Management is telling people to do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. Management should not make mistakes. Leadership has to make mistakes because leadership means you don't know. If you knew it, you'd be a manager. You're exploring. And too often leaders who have succeeded forget to keep exploring. But I think it's difficult to be a leader today because because people are also expecting that you know everything or at least can right. point to a direction, right? So if you say, come on, I'm just experimenting, you know, in a good sense, there is still this kind of notion of, of losing respect for somebody who doesn't have almost all the answers, right? Well, better to lose respect than to lose trust. That if a leader shows up and says, here we go, here we go, here we go, and it doesn't work, did it not work because the leader was two-faced, shortcutting, selfish, lying? Or did it not work because it didn't work? And what we know from worlds of business and politics and sports and everything else is that if a leader tries and is clear about it and fails, everyone's fine with it. I remember you you uh, said somewhere that uh, the secret of leadership is simple. Do what you believe in, paint a picture of the future, go there and people will follow. That's right. Now the key is no one will follow if the picture isn't of a place they want to go. So what we must do is get enrollment from people mm. that this is a journey they want to go on. If you don't have that, Now you're back to being a manager. You're trying to compel people. You can't compel people. All you can do is encourage them. And if uh, you were to give advice to yourself, let's say 15 years ago or something, what would that be then? Yeah, so it wouldn't be to avoid any of the failures because the failures are priceless. I think the only thing I needed to hear was that it was going to be okay. Did you grow up in a, in a family where they yes, said that? Very much. Yeah. My mom and my dad were unbelievable. Mm. they always challenged my sisters and I to do something generous, but they never insisted that it work. That's a gift to have I'm parents grateful. like that, right? I'm grateful for it every day. Mm. What would you say that is, you know, the one most important thing uh, for companies to focus on right now? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if companies can focus on one thing. I think that when they do, it tends to be profit and that ruins everything. I would say that It's very important for individuals within companies to focus on making a difference, not on doing their job. Because doing your job is what you did yesterday. It didn't work that well. Mm. And a lot of companies way, way back, uh, for example, in India, like the old Tata group and so on, sure. the whole existence, base of their existence is really to be a player in, this, in the society. Right. Number one. And then Absolutely. they created jobs and there was a market and they sure. made profit and all that. But it kind of comes from that social role that a company plays. Yeah. I mean, Ayn Rand was an idiot. It's this idea that the job of a company is to maximize shareholder value is crazy. That companies exist because citizens allow them to. They are part of the culture they are in. And so they have to figure out how to matter to the culture, not to take from the culture, but to give. To just finish off on, a, on a, even a larger scale, what, what do you think the world needs most at this time? 
we began by talking about education and asking the question, who's it for, what's it for? And I think so much of the noise in our culture has pushed us to be short-term thinkers. And I wish the people who are listening to this and the people they know and the people they know, which is almost everybody by the time you add it up, would ask more often, what's this for? This thing I'm spending time on, this thing I'm spending money on, this work I'm doing, what's it for? If we ask that more often, I hope mm -hmm. that we would get a better answer. Yeah, that's a good, good, simple and very important question. So, uh, Seth, do you think anything else we should cover that is kind of on top well, of your mind? This has been such a gracious, thoughtful <laughs> interview. You really spent a lot of time on it. It was my pleasure to do it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Grazie. Mm -hmm. Seth Godin, you are amazing. <laughs> No, but really, I mean, because I think you are such a great combination of, you know, somebody who has has this um, kind of visionary feel, but there is a big, big heart as well uh, and a huge capacity and you have always good, good intentions. And that's uh, the so most much. valuable thing. Thanks to me. So thanks for everything and thanks for sharing. To find out more about Seth and his work, you can, of course, head to sethcodin.com and also follow him on social media. And of course, if you want to profoundly understand, you know, the dynamics of today's marketing and behaviors, you can read his blog and also his books. Don't forget the podcast at kimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You have a podcast since a couple of months ago, uh, which I'm listening to. And also, and there you also can get a chance to get your some of your questions answered. Exactly. Right? So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. So share it with the people you know who would benefit from hearing this. So thanks for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. And ciao from New York. Don't make a ruckus.